interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Hey everyone and hello humans. This is Josh with Not A Robot Podcast Comic Show and I am joined by two of my fellow humans, Brandon and Nathan. Today we're also joined by a story creator in comics across quite a few different publishers. If you're not familiar with his works, he's brought us readers. He's brought us readers stories from Wonder Woman, Supergirl, Gotham City Monsters, Electric Warriors, and of course, critical darlings like the Martian Manhunter series and his run in JLA from 2017, among many, 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 many more. Let me introduce to you our very special guest, Steve Orlando. Say hi, Steve. Hey. hey. Woo! How are oh. you guys? All right, Steve. Today we're going to be talking to you about some of your upcoming projects, of which there are quite a few. After breaking away a bit from DC, you found yourself pretty busy. Uh, you've been bringing back Loaded Bible with Tim, with Tim Seeley. You've, you're working the Spectacular X books, of which Nathan and Brandon are major fans. I love. We all love what you did with Midnighter. There's tw- Spider Man 2099. And then, of course, your independent titles, Commanders in Christ, Project Patron. There's there's a, quite a few things we'd like to touch on. Um, so without further ado, I am going to hand you over to my fellow hosts here, and we'll go ahead and get started with the questions. I know they're dying to ask. Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, so um, I just want to say I've really enjoyed Marauders Number 1, which came out today. I thought it was really phenomenal. It feels very epic. And I really love how you're integrating the Shi'ar Empire and adding to that mythology. So I wanted to open by uh, asking you about, or sort of walking through real quick, how you got onto the X-Men team. Because I think it's always one of the most interesting parts for me. Um, I write reading orders, and so for me, like the way the X-Office has worked together is always really interesting. Um, and so you've got Marauders number one out today. You've got Marauders number two coming out soon. You've got Giant Size X-Men, Proud Star number one, um, both of all of which are phenomenal books um and so i wanted to know first of all um how did you get into the x office um and then how did the how is the x office different from working in past comics job uh well i mean me coming to the x office uh i wish there was uh like a swashbuckling story attached the reality is um it happened without uncle jerry going to x-men we don't know if i would be uh in the x-men office right now but i had sort of tested the waters doing books with the X-Men that were not in the X-Men office, you know, Magneto and the Mutant Force, uh, Curse of the Man-Thing, which had an X-Men issue. And folks all thought that there was some big sort of plan, you know, for me to come over. But the honest answer is that each of those, I thought it was going to be like, oh, this is my only time working with the X-Men, working with mutants, so I need to make them as, you know, get everything that I've ever wanted to do. And then after I did that twice, uh, I I got, I had outreach from the X-Men office and Jordan White and... uh, they said, well, you know, do you want to come to the X office if, and, and what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I've already done everything I would want to do twice, but I'm sure I could come up with something else, <laughs> uh, something more. I think I can, I can do that. And um, that's how it, it all came about. The offer was either to take over Marauders or to build something from the ground up. And because I've done Disaster Relief myself, uh, you know, in my, in my non-comics life, Looking at Marauders, seeing that Jerry was outgoing and that this team had this two-pronged mission of which only one had really been served in the focus uh, in the first run, which I loved, uh, it just felt natural to take my own things that I've done in my life, sort of put it through the mutant Krakow and lens and, and really focus in 
on a mutant rescue book since you know that's been there since marauders one and it, it just seemed to make sense that i would pick up the baton and and go a little more in depth there so of course the x office is known for collaboration and working together in ways that are different from how like a lot of comics have at least in the last like couple years um so for example um, John Proudstar was in X-Men Red today, um, also a great book. And how do you, and obviously you're writing Proudstar's story in the upcoming uh, giant size X-Men Thunderbird. So how do you work with those? How do you, as like the X-Office, collaborate to make sure that, hey, we start telling Thunder, or we start telling John Proudstar's story in X-Men Red, but then we also make sure to really fill in the gaps in giant size X-Men. Well, I mean, the nice thing is we all have, it's one of the most, if not the most connected office I've ever been in. You know, if I want to know, uh, if I want to know what, you know, Al is doing in, in X-Men Red, all I have to do is, is either go into our Dropbox and read his brief or connect with him directly, you know, on, on our Slack or something like that. So it's easier than it's ever been. I think that's why the books feel really interconnected, hopefully for you folks. And it feels like we all talk to each other because we really do, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've been in a lot of offices. I've never been in one that runs as efficiently as a group office. Um, I've been in ones that are as supportive, you know, on things like Martian Manhunter, but you know, that didn't have to fit in with, well, anything, honestly, that was its own thing. Yeah. Working in the X-Men world feels like working on Martian Manhunter where the sky's the limit creatively, but the sky's the limit for all of us and we're much more connected and, and able to check in and just make sure everything's clicking. You know, like in all honesty, Nyla, she's the lead on, on, on Proudstar's characterization. So mm -hmm. things like, it's actually the reverse. You know, Al can check in, look at our brief, look at the script because the script was already written when, when X-Men Red was being written. And just make sure everything is going to sync up uh, so that as, you know, as you folks deserve, uh, everything at least appears as though we have a plan uh, with room for improvisation, of course. Of course. Yeah. And um, so one thing I was curious about is obviously when you're writing a run, like you have like your own ideas of like where you want the story to go. And how do you balance your plans for like where you want the story to go with sort of the X office's overall plans for the line as a whole? Uh, I mean, you we're, we're all part of this uh, team, but the books luckily each have to have their own identity. So it, it's more about just making sure your plan fits in between and dance between the raindrops of everybody else's plan. Um, and luckily, we were able to get some pretty big pieces that are going to come to light, as folks saw with Marauders 1 today. You know, the taking up the, the baton of the first generation of mutants, stuff that Jonathan was hinting back as far back as House of X. And... It's more just, you know, it, it's about clear communication and, and, and making sure that we're supporting and holding each other up. You know, like we, I we would never, it's never about like, oh, someone, so-and-so can't do that, or I just want to do this and I have to get my way. It's, it's about how we can all hit the highest point possible. So, yeah, yeah I mean, like, you know, do, do, do you have to cooperate and, and compromise at times? Sure, but at the same time, like we all respect each other and each other's work. So the the, the big top line stories always happen, and and then it's just about how we fit them in, uh, and make them more cohesive. So you said that this that the first mutants were something that Hickman had brought up a while ago, and I was so I was curious when that was, which because I was I don't recall, and so I was just curious to elaborate more there. Uh, they're mentioned in House of X, but I don't know exactly where. And then they're mentioned in, uh, I believe, the apocalypse-focused issue of how of X Men during Cross of Swords. Got it. Thank you, Cross of Swords. I, uh, oh, interesting. Okay. Um, 
So then looking at Marauders, what are some initial ideas for the team and how did those ideas change as you collaborated or worked with uh, your, your artists more? Uh, I mean, Eleonora is such a force um, that it, it, it's main, like the story was the story, but the big things to change are, is, is how we tell the story, how we expect things to be, to lay out and, and, and how you sort of what you shine a spotlight on once you've spoken with your collaborators and seeing what they love to do. Eleonora loved, I mean, the big space battles aspect of Marauders, so we definitely leaned in on that. She loved the character moments, so I may be building in a little more of those, especially up front, than I would before. You know, we're, it, it's a collaboration, so we knew where we were going with Marauders, but the, the real thing is the changes once you find your artistic collaborator, you, you want to make sure you're keeping them happy. They're your first audience. You know, and, and that's how you get more energy on the page and, and more excitement on the page for you folks. So, uh, I mean, we we're always going where we we're going to go, uh, but it's more about like, how can we get there in the way that's most exciting for Eleonora or in the case of uh, the annual for Crease, um, so that what you're getting on the page is going to be as, as riveting as possible. You know, if, if your artist is bored, they're still going to make a comic because it's their job. Uh, but it's not going to be as good and as exciting as it could be. So our first job is always, you know, to understand that even though we're the writers and the baton starts with us, you, we have our story, but the A to B, all that comes in talking to your artists, comes in talking to your colorist, your letter, or everyone else in the creative team and finding out how we can get there uh, and, and sort of what lens we want to use that's going to make it as uh, the production of it uh, as fun for them as possible. And hopefully that comes through on the page. Yeah. Um, so, so looking back at Duggan's run, because obviously you're coming out, you're coming out of it, right, and following it up. Um, I think for a lot of people, they started to fall off a little bit towards the end of the run. So, what would you say to hook readers into this new era or period of time for Marauders? Uh, I mean, like you know, if you dropped off uh, in, in in the last Marauders run, the good news is uh, that this is essentially a fresh start. You know, there's a, there's pretty much a new crew. We're looking at the other side of the mission that's established, uh, and and we're going in a more sort of adventure, obviously rescue and action-oriented direction. Uh, but with that in mind, if you were a Marauders reader, you know we're not just saying none of that stuff happened. Uh, we're building off that. You know, a lot of the alliances and 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 um, partnerships that Kate made, a lot of the progress she made as a person and as a captain, relate to the first run of Marauders. So I think that there's like a little extra seasoning and a little extra story calories and richness if you read the first Marauders run. But if you dropped off because sort of hellfire politics was not your thing, that's all good because we're sort of flipping the perspective here. In, in, the, old, in the previous book, there was a lot of sort of hellfire uh, trading company intrigues and a little bit of rescuing. And now we have probably like 95% rescuing and some, a delicious, some delicious hellfire morsels when they come through. So if the flavors of the original book weren't for you, but the cast was, or at least the leads, then great, because we're flipping the script. Um, and if they were for you, then all the folks, at least most of the folks you love are either in Marauders or in other amazing books in the Krakoan era. And you get to see those characters focus on the part of their mission that they couldn't have before. So if you want a big bombastic action adventure book, this is your, this is your guy. Um, and if you've been with it from day one, then then we're hoping to reward you as well. But anyone can pick it up uh, within the grand scheme of, you know, everything is different in the House of X era, but a, a casual X-Men reader can certainly pick it up and enjoy it. 
uh, you know, as, so, as can a diehard because we have, I think, all the characters are behaving like themselves, um, but, and, and we don't want to be exclusionary to people, but there's a lot of love for X-Men lore in this book. Uh, and the nice thing about it is, um, yeah, there are some deep cuts, but a lot of this lore is things that the characters are meeting for the first time as well. The, you know, the mystery of the first generation of mutants, that's a mystery for our leads, it's a mystery for our readers, and so you're on the journey with them. Uh, you're in the driver's seat with them, and I think it makes it a great place to jump on. Yeah, um, so you opened, you're, you're opening your run with this very cosmic story. Um, the Shi'ar have obviously been longtime allies of the Marauders, or of like the X-Men as a whole, um, and are sort of one of the first groups to accept uh, mutant sovereignty of Sol. Um, and so there's that cosmic side, and then there's also this more geopolitical on Earth side. And obviously you're opening your run with this more cosmic side. So can, is this, is the, can we expect more uh, smarter stuff to take place on Earth? Or is the premise of this run primarily uh, cosmic? Uh, the premise is rescue. Uh, but it's, you, you know, it's... So no, it's not all going to be in space. Um, but that being said, thinking about only being on Earth, uh, thinking about only being in this time, it's very human thinking. So, I mean, you're going to see your bread and butter rescues like you did with Fever Pitch in the first issue. But everything about Krakow is about thinking about life and existence in a different way, in a, in a non-human way, or at least a not uh, human yeah. way by default. So you're going to see rescues in places you don't uh, expect. I mean, it, we already have a mystery that's two billion years old. Um, yeah. And but that being said, of course, I mean, we see the rescue with Fever Pitch, and you're going to see these characters doing stuff in the present on Earth as well. Uh, both during the, the bigger stories and in between those moments when we, when, we, when we check in on the smaller rescues as well. So we'll be all over, uh, but that's part of the fun. You know, mutant rescue and mutant philosophy, mutant culture doesn't have to behave like human people. So I think one of the things that Pride realizes is that thinking linearly, spatially, and time-wise, uh, that's fallback human thinking. So some of the rescues, some of the action, the adventure may not be where you expect. Um, but it's not all going to be in space, and we're definitely returning to Earth. And we're going to, of course, we're going to stop by Araco as soon as we can. Of course. Um, so tell me a little bit more about like your thinking with each of these team members. So obviously, I know I get why you include Kate Pride and Bishop, but I was curious about why you, where, where, why you chose Psylocke, for example, on the, the team. I mean, it's the leader is Kate Pride, uh, and... As we see, even in the data page, it would have been a different team if, if someone, uh, if her co-captain Bishop picked it, you know, like he, he would probably just have run the numbers and done the sort of, you know, have done a bespoke team for every disaster and every rescue, like Moneyball. And by the way, you might see what that looks like in another X-Men book as, as time comes and disasters continue to happen. But Pride is someone who leads from the heart. You know, she's the idealist where Bishop is the pragmatist. So for her, putting this team together is not just about who has the best powers for the job. It's about who needs the job uh, for themselves, uh, you know, the most. And that's where someone like Psylocke comes in. You know, she has been given huge amounts of responsibility in Hellions and did questionable things to get her daughter back. And, and to be frank, you know, obviously was, Sinister was taking advantage of that. It was, it was, it was yeah. a bad faith offer. It was bad faith leadership. So for someone like Psylocke, she deserves 
the anti-sinister, which is in many ways Kate Pride, not because she's uh, an unmad scientist, but because she does exactly what she says she's going to do and delivers 10 times out of 10. She doesn't say she's going to do something for someone like Psylocke and then, you know, use that to manipulate and twist them. Uh, she's a pretty straight shooter. And so for Psylocke, it's that she needs that faith to be rewarded, uh, the faith in her to be in good faith, or I should say trust in her to be in good faith, not manipulation. She needs, uh, you know, her, her loyalty and, and, and power to be rewarded. And she needs a chance to make sure that, you know, what happened to her, as we say in the annual, it doesn't happen to anyone else. And that's what this team allows her to do. She can go out there, she can represent Krakow as a war captain, and she can make the tough choices uh, and fight the tough fights to make sure that folks don't, you know, <laughs> don't have to suffer through what she did with the loss of her daughter ever again, if it's within her power. And the versions of that are the answers for everybody, you know. Everybody's getting something personal from the team. Um, and yeah, their powers play into it, but their personality plays into it even more. You look at someone like Aurora, she's been spending all this time with X-Factor investigations looking at dead mutants. As she says in this issue, she's ready for some proof of life. She's had enough proof of death. Um, and it, in the case of Somnus, you know, it's a way to pay forward uh, the second chance he got uh, by being resurrected on Krakoa, uh, by giving folks uh, a, another chance at, at, at dignity and safety and all these things that the world robs of you. So everybody has a different personal way in, but it is all from a character standpoint. Because obviously a Moneyball team where you just sort of like pick the, the life-saving powers uh, would look a lot different. And as I said, you know, I, I've already turned into script somewhere else where there is a, a natural disaster and in that specific instance, there are a lot of new deputized marauders that it is Bishop just saying, we need X, Y, and Z, because we need to deal with X, Y, and Z, and we're going to do that. But for the overall team, it's all about personality and who is going to put the most heart into that mission. Uh, because relief is as much about, you know, getting sandwiches to someone as it is about treating them with compassion and dignity. And the right powers aren't always the right mindset for something like what the marauders are doing. Yeah, I love that answer. Um, so moving on a little bit to Giant Size X-Men, when you write about a book that deals with identity, it's obviously the stories that often it comes from its plot to its thematic materials leaning heavily into the themes of the identity. So what is the process between you, Nyla Rose, and David Cutler when it comes to both writing the story and trying to tell a story that's unafraid to lean into Native American identity and themes? I mean... I'm, I'm happy to say I'm the wrong one to ask about how to write about Native American themes, but that's kind of, but that's kind of the answer, you know, on Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird, I, I mean, Nyla is a friend, David is a new friend, Nyla and I already knew each other, uh, but the fact is, is like, I'm mostly there to facilitate, I'm there to be, uh, to take what Nyla wants to say, help her say it, and, and make it fit into the greater sort of Krakowin moment and, and, and what's going on in the other books, but I'm really happy to say that I'm a facilitator on that book. You know, uh, and she already has a wealth of experience with character from being a wrestler, but also from being an actress. Uh, she was the star of a sitcom in Canada um, about transitioning, for example. So she already had the skills. It's just about uh, helping her, you know, learn the format, learn the way we tell a story and, and lay it out in comics and taking what she wants to do and making it the best version possible. It's a little bit about, it's a little bit of what editing is too, to be honest. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, I'm doing more than just that there. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's about knowing when to step back from me, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, okay. And, and yeah, I have absolutely. ideas about Proudstar 
I have ideas about Prozor's personality because I too am somewhat stubborn and toxic uh, at times. Uh, <laughs> but when it comes to the cultural notes, I'm basically just here to help them, uh, to help folks like David and Nyla do what they want in, you know, uh, in, in the most exciting way possible and sort of lend my tips and tricks as to how to take your idea and, again, make it the tastiest and most appealing for the readership. But I'm here to listen otherwise, you know, like, uh, yeah. and, and, and often advocate because I do know how to take, you know, our job is also taking what they want as creators and making sure that it, the first sell is to our editors and to the rest of the X-Men room and things like that. So I'm there for that. But otherwise, I'm happy to get out of the way. Nyla's an incredible creator, an incredible writer. David nailed the new costume. He's nailing the action. Uh, the book does not pull any punches. And I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. And you know what? There are things mm -hmm. that I... I was genuinely shocked by in the script, so, uh, some of the some of the aggression that Proudstar faces and, and things like that. But it's 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 it feels right and true to me because it's not just coming from me being a guy who read a book and trying to write this mm -hmm. exploitation story. Um, it, this is from from Nyla's life, from David's life, uh, obviously through the filter of of Krakoa and X Men stuff, but. Um, yeah, I mean, the process is to offer the platform and my and my skills and be an asset and let them tell the best story possible. That's the short answer. Yeah, I love that. So some things, so it's very similar sort of with queer comics, right? And obviously you've written a lot of queer comics. And so I was curious, like, what, 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 how do you balance giving queer characters the chance to have sort of compelling queer arcs with also telling like more mutant-centric and arguably more quote-unquote important, important to like the overall line story? So whether that's with um, Tempo or Kate, etc. I mean, I I can only speak for myself, and it's maybe again not the sexiest answers that people want. But welcome to my career. Like, I don't prioritize <laughs> queer characters. Uh, I prioritize character, um, right. and and that doesn't mean that it doesn't require special attention because there's not as much queer representation as possible. But I don't set out to tell specifically queer stories. Um, but I do set out to tell stories that celebrate every aspect of a character. So, you know, you can't do that story about Tempo without celebrating her queerness. You can't do that story about uh, Akihiro, about Somnus. You know, you just, it, it, it's a core part of their character, but it's not the only part. So, you know, to me, as stories that feature them, at least written by me, written with someone with lived experience, they're always going to be queer, but I don't set out specifically to spotlight those aspects. Um, I guess because as a person, I, 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 don't, I don't like being spotlighted for one aspect of my uh, personality or another. But at the same time, if you are being true to those characters, which is our first obligation, the stories are going to be queer. The perspectives are going to be queer because that's their narrative. That's their life. Those are the things that have brought them to who they are. So, um, look, I, again, I can only talk about how I do it. I, I try to think, I try to balance things in the most organic way possible and not feel like I'm tokenizing them, not feel like I'm sort of exploit, exploiting uh, aspects of the culture. And I hope that comes through. You know, I, I, I have immense respect for also the diversity of queerness uh, that, that is out there in the world and happens to be in this team. You know, it's an exciting moment for me, one of the bisexual writers of comics, to be writing Akihiro who is still just as bisexual as he was before, even though he's with Aurora right now. You know, like I've had plenty of people in real life try to denigrate my sexuality and identity because of who I happen to be interested in in a moment. And they can fuck off, but uh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> nice to be able to... Uh, it's nice to be able to sort of uh, to put that through confidently with the character. But you will never see... 
I guess the difference I should say, and I'm not trying to like secretly turn this into like a fucking tea party. No. Uh, you'll never, you'll never hear Dakin or Akihiro like explain that on the page. You'll never loudly proclaim that he's right. bisexual and glad that everybody's everybody's okay with him being with Aurora, because um, it wouldn't be in character for him. You know, it might be in right. character for other people, but he doesn't give a fuck what people think. Right. About uh, if he's with if he's with uh, you know Aurora in this case, or if he was with Somnus, or the fact that he was with Somnus, uh, he, he doesn't care. So he's never going to do that. Um, but the way that it's presented is always going to be extremely reverent and hyper confident, uh, and, and make no qualms about accepting where he's at with his queer identity. I, I, I'm rambling. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm not really, uh, you know. There are characters that probably do enter a room and like pop, lock, and drop it and yell that they love dick, but like that's not necessarily every character <laughs> I write. And, and yeah. first, but it is some, so stay tuned. Like I'm sure that'll happen in some book I write yeah. somewhere. <laughs> um, so in the same vein of like queer comics, there's a lot of like discussion around sort of like queer identity, especially at Marvel lately, due to the whole controversy with Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. And I was curious to see if. So for you to give you a platform to sort of talk about how those current politics um, surrounding Disney support have affected you or the X office as a whole. Uh, I mean, honestly, it, it hasn't. Uh, we've mm -hmm. always been extremely supported in, in the X-Men office. And I can, and again, I can only speak to my own personal experience. Yeah. I can't make a blanket claim. Um, you know, I had no worries uh, when I saw the greater moves at Disney, you know, if you want to go back a month ago, because I had only ever been supported both in the X-Men office and the other offices I worked in, um, to the extent that, you know, half of the office walked out on Disney Employee Day to support us, you know, so like, and, and the ones that didn't was because they could not. So I'm not, you know, again, I can only talk about myself. I wasn't, I can't say I was shocked. Uh, when I saw that donation, because to be honest, my fucking healthcare provider donated to that $200,000 and they gave oh, yeah. me some yeah. bullshit answer uh, when I brought up that they did, because uh, you know, we got a check mark, people answer you on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I messaged them and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? And they were like, well, you know, bullshit answer about being dedicated to the health of their clients. And I was like, I don't see how this really helps my health, you pieces of shit. But, uh, so I wasn't surprised that a giant corporation made a mindless uh, donation, you know? Um, but I can talk about everyone that I've dealt with and I've never had anything but support. And that goes even into them risking their jobs in ways we can't, you know, by like walking out for that, for that, you know, Disney employee walkout day, which was very heartening to see. Because to be frank, like as freelancers, we don't have that luxury. It's very easy for people on Twitter to say, oh, well, how can you work for Marvel when they did this? And the reality is, like, it's not about that. You, you know, if, if without big two work or an incredibly famous name, like, you're looking at just not making a living. So, like, yeah. it, it, it is. And also, we're freelance. So it's, they, it's not as though there's job security. So um, I, in my person to person, have felt very supported because, yeah, I saw the folks that are on salary and could make the statements that needed to be made making them. You know, getting away messages from my editors that they're out for that day because they're part of this, you know, uh, mm -hmm. employee protest. That's what I needed. You know, I, I, am, yeah. I am perhaps more of a jaded realist than others. Like I, I you know, some, like a group, a, a, a mass exodus of, of, of queer employees was unlikely to ever happen because we need jobs. 
but I did Absolutely. feel very supported by the people who can sort of take a little leeway and, and say something saying such. Uh, and that's sort of always how it's been for me with the people that I deal with on a daily basis there. Yeah, so one last question sort of about X-Men and then if uh, there's time afterwards, we can always double back. But um, this question comes from my uh, boss. I write for the comic book Herald. And so uh, Dave Busick really wanted to ask, answer, have you answer one question. Um, so you uh, have introduced some pretty interesting concepts in Man-Thing and Darkhold, for example, the Dark Riders. Are there any chances you're looking to pull from those minis in uh, for Marauders? Um, I mean, chances, yes. It's just about timing. Uh, and again, there's an X-Men book I'm working on that folks don't know about yet, which is exciting. Um, yeah, I would love to. I mean, I'd love to have uh, the right character show up. I don't want to force it, you know. Could I bend things to have Omega the Unknown show up on Krakoa? Probably, but it's maybe not the most reasonable place uh, for him to show up next. That being said, I do want to get some closure on the Dark Riders. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it. You know, that book happened before I even joined the X-Men office. And I'll, to be frank, like, now that I'm in and I've read Hellions, they are sort of Hellions Jr., uh, and so, and, and many of them have moved on to different awesome things. You know, Shark Girl, I saw just appearing somewhere in one of the Unlimited books. Uh, obviously, Forearm is, was in Sword. Um, Mammo Max, I, in my mind, is working at some all-night diner in Krakoa, but I, I don't, that's, that's not <laughs> canon. Um, Marrow is in Madripoor, so, and Magic is obviously kicking ass in New Mutants. So, I would yeah. love to do a little thing that at least shows folks how that ended up uh, even if it is to get them together to break them up and say that they've outgrown their little like support group um but i would love a chance to do it because i you know it, it, it's it's my weird club so if anyone's gonna if anyone's gonna <laughs> show where how they're breaking up and moving on and growing up i'd love it for to love for it to be me mm -hmm. so that's my hope um and you know what a long enough arc uh, it'll probably happen, but you know, I, I I need to learn from my past on other books, and not put the horse ahead of the cart. You know, the first thing is making sure that every story gets its time, uh, and enough time to be told. So, and there's already a lot happening in Marauders. Uh, and you know, <laughs> I'm really actually excited that we're doing an event tie-in for Judgment Day because it allowed me to slow down and do a lot of character work, and it's a heart-wrenching issue. Our issue. Um, but it's it's also one I'm very proud of. And then we obviously we blast off into some wild shit again uh, right after that. <laughs> yeah. So, Brandon, you want to move on? To yeah, hey, thing? speaking of wild awesome. shit, that's a great transition. Um, <laughs> so we're, uh, we're going to turn back the clock a little bit um, <clears throat> and ask you some questions going back to, to DC, and I thought what better place to start it off than with the start. Uh, with Midnighter, um, and I guess the first question I had was Midnighter, at least to me, in all the appearances that I've read, is a character that embodies the hyper violence of the late '90s and early 2000s, Stormwatch and Authority, respectively. Um, and if you've read those, you definitely know what that means. Uh, but also possesses the sensitivity of someone who's incredibly damaged, um, someone who's really a traumatized fighter. So I guess my question is, how do you approach a character like that as a writer? I mean. Midnighter, much like Akihiro, is not unlike me. I'm not a mass murderer, but we have a similar sense of humor and a similar approach to life. So I think that's why the first book worked out so well, because it's not like it's not it's not a stretch. Like most of his reactions are the way that I would react to things. 
again without murder, but like otherwise uh, very similar. So the key for me, as, as with anything, you know, my, my I don't know what it, I, maybe other people come on and make it seem like this is sorcery, you know. But the, the reality is, no matter what the gig is, like we have to go through, we have to read. Uh, if not all the appearances of a character, though that's relatively easy for it was relatively easy for Midnighter. Uh, the key appearances and the top line evergreen appearances, and you got to find out the core of that character is, and then challenge it. Um, with Midnighter, it was easy, of course, because it's very similar to my own core as a person. But um, and I am a sort of a darkly humored character. Uh, but. You know, the, the point still remains, you know, you, you figure out all the stuff you just said, right? That he's hyper-violent, but also also has a vulnerability inside. He's, he's, he's wounded and would never admit that he wants acceptance, but is actually desperate for it, you know? Um, these are things you decide, and then you craft a story that digs the knife into that in the most emotional and dramatic way possible. And, and, and that's what we did with Midnighter in escalating ways. Um, until, yeah, it obviously it ended with him challenging the devil to a fist fight to get Apollo back. So, um, but that's, uh, you know, that's something he would do. Like when you know Midnight, you're like, he's not going to be sad. He's not going to tolerate death. Like he's not going to, he's, you know, that's just not, he's very familiar with it. So he's, he knows his ways around it and he's kind of saying, well, this isn't good enough. So I'm just going to, yeah, why not go down to hell and beat the shit out of the devil? It's very, it's a very Midnighter thing to do. Um, almost because it's so blunt. You know, like it's like, oh, I don't like that Apollo's dead, so I'm just going to go get him back. Uh, and and but that's his approach to anything. Why not just punch the devil in the face? And if you can't find a way to, which is what he does. Yeah, I mean, all that kind of speaks to my my next question, which was really just with all the different writers that have lent themselves to Midnighter over the years, and it's it's quite a list um you know a, a warren ellis a mark millar a garth ennis all very different styles but still have contributed to to midnighter um and even your your loaded bible partner tim seeley but i guess my question was just how did you kind of differentiate your voice for midnighter while still trying to establish the continuity with the voices in the past because obviously you want to have something that's a little bit distinct but still speaks to the authenticity of you know midnighter as a character I mean, it was seven years ago, but uh, <laughs> to, to, to be clear, though, like, I don't know if we all think about it that way. Like, because the thing is, is I don't go in wanting to tell, at least I don't think about it that way. I don't go in wanting to tell my version of Midnighter. I, want, I go in wanting to tell the best version of Midnighter or the best version of any character. Um, so, I mean, yeah, is my voice a little different? I mean, the douchebag answer is that I'm just better writers than the, the, you know, for that character. The, you know, but that, but that's not true. Like, 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 Tim is amazing, and he wrote Midnight of Recognizing Dick by his ass. Something that I wish that I had come up with, but he beat me to it. Uh, but the fact is, is that like I at least like I want to do the best job possible, and uh, but I don't necessarily I don't want my voice to overpower this sort of unified sort of monolithic core voice that a character has. I should be, you should be getting it through my style and things like that. But, you know, the job is to go back and see what all those other people did and not just like, you know, white out the things I don't like. At least that's not how I, I, I approach things. There, there are scenes with that character that have been written in the past 20 years that I don't love. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I don't think that comes as, that's not like, I'm not making news, like nobody likes everything. <laughs> Um, but to me, it still happened, you know, uh, I remember when I was on Supergirl, 
I was at a, a convention and I was talking about Zor-El being the cyborg Superman. And uh, everybody gasped like I just spoiled the story. Uh, and people were like, oh, well, why would Steve do that? You know, um, but it wasn't a spoiler. Like it had been written in the New 52. It's just that nobody read it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> or forgot. And, I, and they're like, well, if we, you know, this was terrible. You should like, well, listen, regardless of whether it was good or bad, and I didn't actually think it was bad, it's an opportunity. You know, what's more crushing than wanting your father back? And he's back, but he's a murder cyborg. Um, Bummer. But someone put their heart and soul into that. So I, like, I'm not a person who would ever, like, I might bend characters in a different direction, but I wouldn't. I, I never want to override someone, you know. So and that, and that goes for Midnighter, you know. Is everything that's been done with him? The closest it came is that I never liked that he had a real name, because uh, to me that's just not the character. You know, he's like the man with no name. His name is Midnighter. There's no whatever the fuck he called himself, Lucas or some bullshit. Lucas Trent. Um, <laughs> yeah. But even that, we turned into story. I didn't just act like those things didn't happen. You know, you find out that that was a name he made up. It's not his real name because he wanted to seem more normal to Apollo. We didn't, and so, yes, the reveal was that he still just only has Midnighter as a name. But it's not as though we were just like, that's dumb, so it didn't happen. You know what, because whoever did that thought it was the right thing to do. And maybe it was the right thing to do for the time, you know, but it, it, it didn't work for me. So yeah, we turn that into story to get it to where I thought would fit the character, but it's not as though I just like pressed a button and knew someone else's thing. That's just not how I am personally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously we've been discussing, you know, queer characters and queerness in comics a lot. Um, so I, I feel like this is definitely a question that should be considered. Um, but as one of the, I, I would say, premier queer characters of, of Wildstorm and of course later DC, um, what sort of, you know, authentic characteristics? And I think you kind of already talked about your own personality. Uh, did you hope to bring to Midnighter's personality and story? Um, and I guess just kind of continuing that, how did you, you know, handle writing complex and flawed queer relationships, considering that I believe at the beginning of the series, Midnighter and Apollo were kind of on a break. We've obviously seen Midnighter in a lot of different scenarios as a father, as a a husband, a fighter, a lot of different things, but what kind of, um, you know, maybe authenticity or experiences did you bring to that character? I mean, the thing is, is like you mentioned, like that they're imperfect and fractured and, and, and complicated relationships. To me, that is how you build authenticity. The real world is not a fairy tale. Uh, relationships are work. Uh, it, it's not, it's not, it's not, there, there's no happily ever after. I'm sorry to ruin people's days on this podcast. So, um, <laughs> the way that you bring authenticity and the first things you're doing is by making them more complicated. I remember, um, I forget his last name, but, uh, an acquaintance of mine, an internet acquaintance of mine, John Eric wrote an article when Midnighter came out and it was called Midnighter is not a cinnamon roll. And um, now to be clear, I'm an idiot and don't know internet terms. So first I was like, of course he's fucking not a cinnamon roll. He's a trained killer. Um, but I come to find out that that was a term that just meant like someone, it's essentially like the, the marginalized Mary Sue. Like he had no problems. Everything was perfect. He never had any conflict. And that's just, I mean, listen, that's just not, that's never, even from day one in 2014 when I was pitching this book, um, it just wasn't what interested me because to me that's, I mean, 
again, my words are only my words and they're not law, but to me that basically is soft tokenism, you know, if, if, because no real queer person has this life of luxury where everything just works out and they open a fucking bagel shop. It just right. doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, so I was always, you know, like Midnighter was going to be surrounded by imperfect people uh, and be imperfect himself. Because to me, that's real representation, you know, like and these queer relationships from day one in this book and in my career, I always said I, I didn't want special privileges. I didn't want to be showing things in Midnighter. Um, you're asking about the moments, right? Like I didn't want to be able to show something in Midnighter that you couldn't show in, a, I forget what the rating was, a T plus book that had a straight star. But I did sure as hell want to be able to show everything in Midnighter that you could show in fucking Grayson or in Green Arrow, for example, because that's how it should be. There's nothing inherently more adult about queer sexuality, but I, you know, at the same time, I wasn't barging into DC being like, well, think of the, you know, think of, you know, I don't know, playing some sort of guilt card and expecting that I could have like full cock in a T-plus book. It just was not the way. But I did get, you know, but we could show, the benchmark for me, you want to talk about things that we really did. We showed queer sex in a way that I think hasn't been shown in a comic up until that time um, and was on par with the things that were happening in books like Green Arrow and Grayson, you know, like, um, I mean, and, and it's a gift that Tom King and Tim Seeley had a woman riding Dick Grayson screaming dick like a month before Midnighter oh, yeah. came out. Because yeah, right. any time yeah. they brought something up, I was like, look at this, fuck off. Like, and, <laughs> and, it, and it mostly worked. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I... I I, I, I don't know if you're looking for personal anecdotes that, that, that appeared in the book. Uh, I, I'm sure I've had sex on a kitchen counter at some point in my life, but like it's, 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 it's more the complexity. It's more letting us be imperfect and fallible and make mistakes and overcome those mistakes because those, that's real story and that's real character, and we deserve that uh, as, as queer folks, but the, we deserve our characters to, to be just as well-rounded as any other character as well. At least that's, uh, that's my take. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I 100% agree. Um, and and co conveniently, that, that gives us another way to segue to uh, a bit of a retrospective as we're you know, moving on from Midnighter into a, a book that I had been reading you know, pretty much since day one, uh, Justice League of America, um, and it's it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, imperfect or, or maybe flawed characters because you know when I think of Justice League of America, um, while some characters might be flawed, it was just an incredibly diverse cast, not just in gender and ethnicity and sexuality, but also galactically. I don't know if that's a word, but you know you had a character like Lobo who's so far divorced from anyone else that was on the league at that time. Um, and it was just interesting and we got, to see. And we got, away with, uh, we got away with saying that Lobo took a planet's virginity and nobody noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and doing stuff like that, you know, with, with such a, a large cast. Um, so I, I guess my question, um, and I'm, I'm sure you get this one a lot, but how do you juggle so many different personalities and motivations given how different everyone is while still kind of <laughs> facilitating that growth for each character? You know, you have someone like Batman who there's only so much you can really change about him within the span of uh, X amount of issues, but you still want to try and execute some kind of growth if you can. Well, if, if contemporary reviews are to be believed, I did it badly. That's how I did it. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. no. It's, it's, it's uh, one I've, of the reasons. I've got my, my issues back from 2017 here, uh, back in high school, so I, I still remember it's it. One it's one of the reasons I was sort of uh, nervous about taking on another team book in Marauders, although I think I'm a different 
as as by definition, I'm a different person than I was five years ago, uh, and I've I've learned a lot more. But um, I still, I, you know, I, I tried to do what I could in Justice League, and it's very pleasing to me to hear that you enjoyed it. Um, I do honestly think I got kind of lost in, 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 in the weeds of just doing a bunch of new character shit and a bunch of new and not enough comfort food. But at the end of the day, the again, the work is to think about, you know, who is the actual like focus character for an arc? The extremists, for example, couldn't challenge anyone. But, you know, Batman is the co-leader of that team. Um, so the first arc, often with a team you'll have one or two characters that are challenged by something in an emotional and character sense, and the rest are there to support. Uh, and that was Batman for the first one, right? Because because mm -hmm. Havoc, I actually, I still think Havoc is a great arch villain or a great villain for Batman, not just because he's evil Doctor Doom, more evil DC Doctor Doom, pardon me. Uh, but because he is, you know, the best Batman villains uh, are exaggerations of parts of his personality, and, and they tweak that. And, you know, Havoc is a fucking fascist, which on a bad day, Batman, I'm sure, wishes, you know, not, not wishes, but, you know, he accidentally dips his toe into, since he is just autocratically flying around and beating the shit out of people. Um, so Havoc is like the nightmare version of that. Uh, and... So you kind of think about it the same way, and but you know when it comes to who's getting challenged and who the arc is really anchored on, and then you just make sure that everybody gets an arc to be anchored on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the, that was you know the Prometheus arc was all about showing the growth between Killer Frost and uh, well the growth of basically all the non-lead characters because you know Prometheus thinks everybody are, they're all chumps, and the team does come back together without Batman if I recall correctly. I think he's off the team at that point. Uh, to do something, to beat Afterthought and Prometheus, which had previously basically never, you know, not really been done. I mean, they, they don't show up too often. Batman did beat Prometheus by cheating uh, in, in the original Justice League run, um, but that was, that was the benchmark for me. Um, yeah. So, and, you know, we bring it back around uh, with something like the, the final arc is an, is an Adam arc, you know, Kronos uh, and Ryan Choi, and, and, and with that, these are characters that sort of have always worked. When you do time and space, it always ends up getting really janky and mythic, which I'm excited for. So yeah, like it, I mean, the fist to fist, the fist to face is, is the Adam and Kronos. Um, but then it was also a chance to work in all this lore that Gerard and I had been building in, in the Doom Patrol JLA crossover. Uh, and as you said, like have this team that is probably one of the more diverse uh, in, in the history of the Justice League, get to witness something, uh, you know, essentially a, a holy moment for superheroes and the, where the, you know, and, and protect this site where essentially superheroism began on earth. So, um, in that case, it's, 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 it is about both the very clean sort of comics rivalry between Adam and Kronos. And then it's about these characters sort of taking what is predominantly, what had predominantly been a very mainstream myth and taking it for their team. You know, like this is the Justice League that gets to see the birth of superheroism. And it's not the one that's mostly white folks and one woman. Uh, and, and that I think does have metatextual significance. We hope, we hope it pleased people, but uh, at the end of the day, we, we just, we try to give as many people their moment to shine as possible. I wish I could have done even more with Vixen, she does get a lot of great moments in the Queen of Fables arc, but she's my favorite character from that book. Um, so I would have always done more with Vixen. I mean, to me, she's done everything Bruce Wayne has done. 
while starting with nothing and being a black woman, like she should be a superstar for people. And to me, she is. So, and by the way, T. Franklin's doing some great stuff with Vixen right now. Uh, but I'm excited oh, yeah. anytime I see her show up because her story, um, yeah, to me, it, it really is what I just said. Like, she's lost, she lost her parents like Bruce. She ended up being a superhero and a billionaire like Bruce, but she didn't start, she didn't do the Donald Trump and start with a small loan of a couple million dollars. She really started with nothing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that she should always be an even bigger deal in story uh, than she is now. Hey, Vixen Webcomic got announced today. Yeah, so, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a lot to, to definitely take in. And I think um, no matter what the reviews say, the book exists, right? It's there. It's out in the world. And the fact that it was created and, and distributed and shared with people can exist and, and stand the test of time in its way. I think it speaks to the book's accomplishments, regardless of what, you know, contemporary reviews might have said. Um, so we don't have a ton of time left. Um, so I'm going to try and combine a few questions and we're going to sort of um, shift from JLA into commanders. So uh, stand by. We'll see how this goes. Um, but this this question is is in part for me, uh, in part for you, maybe for the listeners, probably a little bit more for me because of my own ego. Um, but uh, with uh, with characters, you know, like uh, um, you know Prometheus and Aztec and Lord Havoc and the Queen of Fables and other stuff like that, I definitely got the sense that some of the aspects of that book were um, a tribute to. I guess I would call the the uh, late '90s, early 2000s period of DC a lot of the Morrison influence. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because I, at least in my own way, kind of sense that connective tissue between some of that and some of the ideas that were explored in Commanders in Crisis, your recent work at, at Image Comics, um, which definitely dealt with a lot more conceptual problems, but also was dealing with the team dynamics and character interactions. Um, and so I was just wondering how much that period might have influenced your work and then also as an extension of that question how do you handle a lot of these kind of conceptual ideas when you're working on a team book that's you know also has to be grounded in character interactions and growth and all that stuff that we uh, have to deal with well the conceptual stuff only matters if there's a relatable face to it you know like mm -hmm. uh, that's why i think when other people work on for example like the endless Sometimes it can fall a little flat because at the end of the day, like they're some of the most powerful beings in the DC universe, but it's still a sibling rivalry. You know, like you, you need that thing to hold on to, and it's still Morpheus at the time. Now Daniel, uh, mm. he's just he's the world's biggest sad boy, despite being all powerful. You know, so like you need something to latch onto, and I try to do that too. You know, like the, there's there's a pettiness to the Queen of Fables that I think is is is, is very relatable. Um, I mean, at least if you're me and extremely petty, uh, <laughs> but the, the other, the other question is like, yeah, I mean, look, I'm 30, it'll be 37 this summer. I grew up reading a lot of back issues from the eighties and a lot of current stuff from the nineties. And I think folks often draw on the things that were influential and in moving to them as, 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 as a youth. I mean, if you think it wasn't a dream for me to work, uh, on a book that let me put Flex Mentallo and Batman together, you're just wildly yeah, right. incorrect. <laughs> Um, and I, but I, but I myself am also a big Silver Age guy, you know, so the idea, hope with Justice League specifically, was that we would be doing like a Gardner Fox style delivery, uh, which is to mm -hmm. say a lot of stuff, a lot of new ideas really fast in and out, 
But the idea is to be more provocative and influenced by the stuff that I read when I was younger, which, yeah, was like The Invisibles, Morrison's Doom Patrol, uh, stuff by Rachel Pollock, stuff by, early, I mean, early Peter Milligan. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I, it's it's you know, funny. Um, John I, I, Rosam. Yeah. I, I dug out of the garage today my old copies of Shade the Changing Man that I had in storage for like four years. And it was it was a delight to see those. I love Shade. I mean, and also, by the way, <laughs> Cecil and uh, Marley's Shade the Changing Woman, which came out, Changing Girl, pardon mm. me, also a great book from the Young Animal Run. Um, oh, yeah. That I remember now that we got thinking about Milk Wars. But, no, I mean, I Tom King always used to like to joke that I wanted to make it 1997 again. Um, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's false. Uh, based on my work at Marvel, I clearly want to make it 1992 again. Right. Um, <laughs> Where's all the pouches? But, yeah. uh, well, stay tuned. <laughs> keep keep an eye on Marauders. We got plenty. We got we got plenty of '90s shit coming up. Uh, but um, but no, I mean you you always draw back to the things that that were influential to you. But I think the key is to not get stuck in that. I think that there's great stuff from every era, um, and you'll you already see in something like Marauders. I'm pulling from. The things that were big for me, I mean, Cassandra Nova is on the team because she's the first X-Men villain that I, I, I've read every appearance of, and I met with issue one, you know? Um, but the reason that we're pulling from stuff like District X, or I've pulled from UDs in the past, uh, or Morlocks, I can't, I forget which one Bouncer was in, I apologize to whoever is way on top of that. Um, I pulled from, you know, Alpha Flight one-shots from the 80s that I just thought were really great. It's because, you know, like folks want to see everyone is a, of a different age and every reader loves some era that was like their era and they all want to see it celebrated. So, yeah, like I'm going to obviously my eyes on the stuff that was formative for me, but something was formative for everybody. So our job is to celebrate everything in a way that is pushing the stories forward uh, and, and in a holistic sense says this all mattered. This is all real. This is all great and exciting. Uh, and I try to do that, you know, that's why you see things like Stitch that's, I mean, look, there's a, the revelation, the person I referenced in the, the annual uh, was from the first Wolverine Punisher Marvel Knights crossover by Pat Lee. Um, you know, I find things that I think are provocative and interesting where I find them. It doesn't really matter to me if it's something I read as a kid. But yeah, of course, we have our biases. Mine is certainly for the 90s. Um, but hey, you know, I'm doing 2099 30th anniversary. Uh, there's nothing more 90s probably than that, uh, but we're still trying to push it forward. And I'm super excited for that, by the way. Funny thing is, I, I talked about an interview, a different interview, but when I, I started trying to break into comics when I was 12, which was in 1997. Maybe that's why I'm trying to make it 1997 again. Uh, so I was already trying when Grant and, um, and, uh, and Frank Whiteley came on New X-Men. And they did such incredible work that I was like, and I was already like cold calling Marvel like a jackass, you know, as if they were going to give me a job. Um, and I was like, the only way I could possibly get on X-Men, you know, here in 2001 when I was 16 and definitely going to get hired, is <laughs> if I just didn't do anything in the present because Grant has done such an amazing job there. So what if I did X-Men 2099? maybe for the 10th anniversary. 
So that obviously didn't work out. Uh, but it is wild to me to think that now, you know, 20 years later, I am working on an anniversary for those characters and I am pushing them forward. And all of 2099. But it, it is a true story that that was one of the first things I pitched Marvel way back in 2001 when perhaps some of you weren't alive but i sure was and i was and i and i was pitching and i was pitching books uh it would take until of course well for marvel it would take until like last year but uh it would take many years until something that i pitched actually got accepted but i was there doing it and now i'm finally knocking the things off my list that i started uh yeah, yeah. when i was but but a youngin so we're out of time, but I want to real quick plug everything you've got because you got a lot going on. So the Midnighter Complete Collection comes out May 24th, and you guys can pre-order it on Amazon or elsewhere now. Marauders number one is out now with Marauders number two on the 27th. And don't and make sure to check out the Marauders Annual number one, which drops out on Marvel Unlimited later this month. Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird comes out April 27th. Loaded Bible Blood of My Blood number two comes out just arrived today in LCSs. Transformers Gridlock is wrapped up and the trade's coming out June 28th. And make sure to check out Darkhold with the trade paper back out now and Extreme Carnage, which is on Marvel Limited and with the trade out. And finally, uh, make sure to check out Spider-Man 2099, Exodus uh, number 11. Or uh, number one, on which begins May 11th. But also number 11, if we get one, you should check that one out too. Yes, yes, number 11 sounds great. Yeah, and pick up Man-Thing and and JLA, and they're all great, um, I would say, (laughs) and they're they're worth checking out. Uh, I'm sorry we ran out of time because I really wanted to get into Loaded Bible with you, but... Uh, maybe well, we'll do let's, do a, let's do a let's do a let's do a five minute speed round of Loaded Bible, but you'll get abbreviated oh. answers. But then I then I really got to hop off. But it's going to be a speed <laughs> round, so let's roll. All right, not a yeah. problem. Uh, the book is hilarious. Jesus Christ, Messiah, Vampire Hunter, and at least for a little bit, social media superstar. Um, it's obviously a, a, a somewhat sensitive book to some, but uh, it is incredibly entertaining. Uh, the the art from from Sealy starting it up to where you've joined I've read all of one and I've also read two because of the advanced reviews thank you uh, I love where it's going and I've got some lighter hearted questions for you what what drew you to being a part of the loaded Bible book uh well I mean I a like I I love being a provocateur uh, but B the honest answer is that I I myself I mean I, I I'm half Jewish. Uh, which, because it's on my mom's side, means I'm all Jewish. Uh, but I'm, I'm also confirmed Catholic on my father's side, which by dogma means I'm all Catholic. So to say that there's been a conflict inside me for, well, the past 37 years would be an understatement. But the thing is, is that, I mean, this is something I'm passionate about. Like, folks, I'm sure there'll be folks that think we're making fun of Christianity and things like that. But the reality is it's not an anti-Jesus book. It is an anti-hate book and an anti-hypocrisy and bullshit book. But he himself is, you know, and and this is something, and there's no shade intended to folks who feel differently than me. I can only talk about my own personal journey. But to me, you know, when I was going through confirmation, um, it's when I started sort of to smell bullshit. Uh, you know, like, like when I, when I would sit there and, and the, whoever was teaching would say like, well, it really comes down to love yourself and love your neighbor. And then I look at like, you know, I I look out my window or a couple years later, I'm at college, we're getting picketed by the God hates fags people. Uh, Well, that's not love your fucking neighbor. So it's it's probably not love yourself either, if we're being honest. So um, 
you know, the line that this book cuts is, 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 it is personally important to me because the character himself is, you know, practices radical compassion and radical love which is something that, you know, I learned and I didn't see in the implementation before I left that religion, you know, and it's one of the reasons. So there's, there's a real answer behind it. Like, yes, it's fun to see him just housing vampires and, and punching hypocritical popes in the face and shit like that, um, you know, riding around in the, in, you know, on Sky Savior drones and all this shit. But at the end of the day, I feel like it does have something real to say because it became apparent to me very early uh, that if the person I was being taught about came back now, uh, he wouldn't be on the side of the people telling everyone they were going to hell and, 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 and promoting all this violence and, and judgment and all this shit. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a blockbuster book that is not really here to talk down to you, but there is something really personal, for me at least, behind it. I, I can see that in the, in the writing. It's, it's, it's very poignant in saying, um, yes, he's, he's all of these things that a messiah is supposed to be, but at the same time, he understands that he himself is a phony. And he's still just trying to do the, the, the best that he can. Um, I think I'm going to wrap this up with just one last question because, I, because I, I have to ask. How much fun was it to write this one with Tim, Tim Seeley? Oh, it's great. I mean, because Tim and I have very similar sort of grindhouse uh, camp tastes. Uh, you know, it, like we, we love all the same shit. Um, and, and, you know, half of these scripts are just us popping each other, you know, with, with the one-liners and things like that. So, uh, it's very pleasing, uh, working with Tim. And honestly, we've been friends from day one. We met at the DCYRU summit and immediately hit it off. And that's as far back as I've been harping on Tim to let us do this. Uh, and wow, it just took really? seven years to convince him, um, it's you know, because the book 15, appealed, I think. Well, the book appealed to me for the reasons that I said earlier when I was a reader. So the minute I was in the room with Tim, I was like, wait, we have to, you, you got it. We got to do this. We got to do it. And finally it came to pass. But yeah, I mean, we love a good, a good, uh, I would say uh, late 80s, early 90s inspired schlocky action movie. And, and that's what we're trying to do here. Like with the, the book is supposed to feel made like, like, you know, a lost book from the 90s and its art style and its delivery. Um, but with a little more something behind it, a little more heart and things like that. And, and hopefully that's coming across. I think like so. Like a hack slash, which I love. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Steve, ha um, I, go ahead. Yeah, another idea I wish I had, by the way, this is the story of Tim's career. If I could <laughs> oh. go back in time, oh. I wouldn't kill, I wouldn't oh, kill baby Hitler. Genius. I would just suck <laughs> Tim's brain fluid out. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. Make an edible out of it. I don't know how I would get it into my body, but we'll, you know that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out sooner or later. All right, Steve, thank you so much for giving us the chance to talk to you today. It means a lot to us. All of us here are big fans of yours with your big work in the, in the big two and all of your independent stuff as well. We really appreciate the opportunity. Listeners with good creatives like these, it's important that we remember to support them. Pre-order books at your local LCS and wherever you buy comics to make sure that the quality comics keep on coming. Once again, thank you, Steve, and thank you, listeners, for this episode at Not Robot Comics. As always, there's only one way we say good goodbye around here. Be good to yourself, be good to your each other, stay human, and don't be a robot. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steve. We really yeah, appreciate yeah, we you coming it. on here. Yeah, awesome.
thank, thank you so much. Yeah, it's my it's my pleasure. Um, you will continue to get review copies of the new email. It'll probably be a while till I, before I remember to remove the old one off. So feel free to uh, be annoyed. <laughs> That's <laughs> but you'll get them at the new one too. Um, but anyway, um, yes, I'm gonna hop off because I gotta grab dinner um, and get some more stuff done tonight. But it is a pleasure. Uh, and when this is live, just ping me. I'll be happy to promote it and and all that good stuff. Excellent. All right, thank it'll you. probably Absolutely. be tomorrow. Thank you, so thank you, Steve. Have a good one. Thank you, folks.